up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody? It is January 21st, 2022. Very happy to be here. First and foremost, I want to remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons. I'll give you the two rules for the podcast, and then we are going to get started. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers, over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is the only place that I have ordered gold and silver bullion for the last couple of years. I love the job that they do. They turned around my orders very quickly. They always have a lot of inventory in stock. They're trustworthy. Uh, they've done over $3 billion in sales. They've been in business for a decade now. And I'm just happy to recommend them. I know a lot of my listeners are into gold and silver like I am. So I'm happy to recommend JM Bullion. And you can always reach out to Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. If you want some personalized attention, don't want to deal with the website, maybe you have questions, maybe you want to talk to somebody there, just email Laura. Tell her you're a QTR podcast listener. She'll get right back to you. You don't have to deal with any kind of bullshit. And uh, you get the attention, personalized attention, that, of course, I know you deserve. You fine, fine human being. I can already tell you're a fine human being because you're listening to my podcast. And, of course, it's the only thing I care about. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson to provide an incredible platform where you can actually do a live question and answer session with these guys several times a week and other experts too, by the way. There's other people that they bring in, all kinds of intelligent individuals that are much smarter than I am. Um, but George Gammon runs the show over there. He's been a guest of mine many times. I consider him a friend of mine. He gave me a shout out on his last podcast too. Thanks for that, George. I was listening to that shit when I was going for a run the other day. Um, but the Rebel Capitalist Pro forums are an incredible resource. Their Q&As are an incredible resource. And George Gammon in general is doing a great job in providing information that will help you preserve wealth and survive in a world of out-of-control central banks. He is a pro-liberty, pro-freedom uh, capitalist and a hell of a nice guy to boot. Rebel Capitalist Pro is super cheap. I think it's like $49 a month or whatever. It's totally worth it. Uh, they have great um, online uh, model portfolios that you can follow, all kinds of uh, wonderful resources. So check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. The link to that is in my podcast description right alongside of my JM Bullion links. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Doomberg. Doomberg is one of my favorite substacks to read. If you follow me on Twitter, you see that I retweet a lot of their stuff. Um, I really enjoy reading them. It is a 100% free substack to read, so you can just click through my link on my podcast description and go and sign up and uh, get their stuff for free. They publish every couple of days. They're a collective that looks at the markets through a very similar lens uh, as many of us do. It's a skeptical kind of lens. It's a hard money kind of lens. It's a conservative finance kind of lens. Uh, it's a you know deep value kind of lens. It's a contrarian kind of lens. Uh, and it's just great perspective. Uh, they opine on topics many of which I know nothing about, and so I've learned a lot from them. They were ahead of me on the uranium trade. Um, just a fantastic resource and totally free, so no reason not to read it. Click through the podcast description and check out the Doomberg Terminal. It's 100% free. Uh, this podcast also brought to you by my friends Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room. The Steam Room is one of the longest-running original gangster pieces of software for tracking all 
types of interesting things that happen in the market, including flows into options, all kinds of tape reading. It will help you with market psychology. It'll help you identify where the big money is moving. Uh, you know, Sanglucci and Wall Street Jesus have been at this for a decade now, at least. I've known the guys now, I think, for a decade. Honest people to do business with. It's a beautiful piece of software that gives you an edge if you don't use it like a herb, uh, as I always say. Can give you an edge and can pay for itself. If you want to try it out for free, just reach out to Lucci or Wall Street Jesus. Those links are in my podcast description. Tell them I sent you. And tell them you want a free trial. No credit card, no bullshit, no nothing. Same goes for George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Pro. Uh, if you want to check his shit out, just go over there. Tell him QTR sent you. Tell him you want a free trial. He'll make sure you get it. Uh, he gets you taken care of. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Corvus Gold. My friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer over at Value Investors Edge. I think that's the name of his uh, marketplace. I just thought of it off the top of my head. But check out Jay Mintzmeyer. His link is in my podcast description too. Great shipping analyst. My buddy Russ Valenti. Thanks for your continued support. Crichton Titus and Camila Soul. And some of my newest patrons, people like Ryan. Thank you so much, man, for signing up on Patreon. Todd Lorman, I appreciate you. Gator Patriot, Matt Miller. Thank you, buddy. Justin Reynolds, Brett Moore, Joe Dierte, and Abinash Panda. Thank you so much for your continued support. And also people like Victor Ramirez and Daniel Hamron. Uh, Philip McCrevis, have to always say what's up. And Seth Donnelly, thank you very much, my friend, for signing up and continuing to support the podcast. Zach Hansen, Andrew Clements, uh, Chris H. and Matthew Allen, some other people that have been uh, supporting the podcast for some time now. I really genuinely appreciate you guys. I always look through the Patreon list. I'm always looking at the people. And then, you know, when sometimes people shout me out on Twitter or whatever, ask me a question, I and I notice they're a Patreon, I like to follow them, and I like to, you know, try to address as many questions as I can. Doug Brimer and Jim Thomas, thank you guys both very much, too. I see you right here on the list. All right, this podcast has a three-drink minimum. I am not an investment advisor. I'm not an expert in any way. I hold no licenses, no registrations. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell any securities. I generally have no idea what I'm talking about. You shouldn't listen to anything that I say. And with that being said, we should get started with the podcast. All right, it's been a long time since I've just ranted and raved on a podcast, so I got a lot of things that I want to talk about today. The first of which is that the Federal Reserve is fucked. And so are all of the quote-unquote market geniuses that it has created along the way over the last 10 years. And quite frankly, I don't want to be a dick, but I'm kind of enjoying it. <laughs> I mean, I was just out for a run, and I was just thinking to myself... You know, actually, I was out for a run and I was listening to Peter Schiff's podcast, his latest podcast, wherein he, as he usually does, talks about, uh, you know, how the Fed has backed themselves into a corner, which they definitely have done. And we'll talk about it. But at some point during the podcast, he talks about Kathy Wood and ARC, which, of course, I've written about at length. If you don't subscribe to my blog yet, it's called Fringe Finance, quotetheraven.substack.com. I've written about ARC quite a few times now over the last couple of months, and it all kind of started back in November when I wrote about the idea that the NASDAQ could be on the precipice of another crash. And that was really the first kind of piece that I wrote where 
I changed my attitude from, hey, the Fed-induced bubble after the pandemic's going to keep going to, I really think we're on the precipice of a huge fucking problem here. That then turned into several pieces that I wrote in December, basically warning that the market could be volatile into the holidays and into the new year. Of course, we know in December, the Fed has, you know, inflation numbers went off the charts. The Fed came out and eventually started to say, hey, listen, we got to fucking do something here. Uh, You know, a hamburger costs $22. Something's wrong. You know, maybe you don't need any Excel models for that one. You don't even have to be a fucking sentient, you know, carbon based life form to understand hamburger, $22 bad, you know, (laughs) there's no Excel formulas required. You know, when you walk into a McDonald's and a Big Mac costs you $22, something is wrong somewhere in the financial system. Gotta figure it out. Gotta figure out what's wrong. Something's broken. Hamburger, 22 bad. (laughs) So I think the Fed's finally starting to get it is my point. It's become that obvious, right? Sometimes the truth has a way of just bludgeoning you in the face, like a uh, World of Warcraft character would to, you know, a a dragon in a dungeon somewhere. Just take the battle axe and just whack away at it. And that's kind of what the truth did to the Fed uh, in December. And at some point, Jerome Powell actually changed his tone and said, hey, listen, I think we're going to have to do something here. At least we're going to have to posture like we're going to do something because shit's getting a little out of hand. And lo and behold, uh, the market kind of thought about it for a little while. It went down, but then it went back up. And I wrote a piece in December called Sometimes Bad News is Just Bad News, uh, December 17th, 2021. And uh, I write in the article, I felt like I couldn't write this article fast enough yesterday when it appeared the Dow was going to open up over 200 points and Wednesday's rally would continue. And I wrote, uh, you know, fading yesterday's rally, at least for now. Powell is posturing like QE is over. Well, in the long term, it's probably not true. They're going to try it first and markets could puke as a result. And, uh, you know, I guess Powell had let on at some point in December with one, you know, shade of an instance of changing a word in a statement somewhere gave the market the impression it was okay to rally 3% because, you know, tightening wasn't going to happen as badly as they thought. But the fact is something has to happen because inflation is out of control. And this is going to be a directional negative, I argued, right? Hence the title. Sometimes bad news is just bad news. Well, what does that mean? It means that investors have been conditioned over the last decade or 15 years to think that bad news, bad economic data is good news. Because when bad news comes out, there's more of a chance that the Fed is going to ease quantitatively. And so markets would rally when we would get a shit jobs number or, you know, a shit manufacturing number or a shit retail number. Well, now bad news is just bad news. And I think it's taking people, there's a transition period here, six weeks, two months, however long, it's been taking people a little bit of time to understand that bad macroeconomic news now is just going to lead to stagflation. It's not going to lead to the Fed loosening because they can't loosen anymore, right? Inflation is the roadblock blocking the entrance to the loosening tunnel for them. They can't get past it. They have to tighten, or they at the very, very least have to posture like they're going to try to tighten. Um, But the idea of loosening because bad economic news is coming out now is off the table. And the Fed has really, and this is what Schiff was talking about, and I I recommend going back and listening to his last podcast too. I'm going to look up the uh, title of it right now. 
as Schiff gets cranky when people quote him and don't uh, attribute him, which is fine, by the way, because I understand that gripe. I've had people rip my shit off, too. I don't really care enough to give a shit, but, you know, here it is. The most obvious crisis almost no one saw coming is the podcast that he had. And by the way, the idea that I had in November, too, and I read it in my article that, you know, the NASDAQ is on the precipice of another uh, crash like we saw in 1999 was spurred by my friend Rosemont Seneca on Twitter, who had been saying that over and over and over again. And I think the 12th time I read it, I started to think about it. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think this fucking guy is right. You know, so I don't have any problem admitting that, you know, a lot of my content, what comes out of my podcast and what I write about in my blog is really a bunch of opinions going into the Margaritaville brand blender that is my head uh, being mixed around and then, you know, whatever comes out the spigot at the end. Um, you know, there's some organic analysis in there. I do have some ideas on my own. Uh, I write about those also, but I do. I read a lot of other people's stuff too because uh, I feel like, uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's important to have perspective. So anyways, point of the matter is sometimes bad news is just bad news. And that is the landscape that I saw going into 2022. And lo and behold, here we are in 2022, and the market has been getting porked. Uh, There has been a lot of elevated volatility because what I wrote a lot about in December was that if Powell didn't change his tone, he didn't need to come out and like reiterate shit and say, yes, we're tapering, yes, we're tapering, yes, we're tapering. He just needed to not say anything dovish that we would continue to see volatility, and that's what has happened. You know, Fed minutes are a layered series of precedents, so unless he comes out and updates his current language, I don't expect the market to expect anything else. I think what's happening now is a realization that he is going to start to follow through. And you're seeing it in the bond market now. You're seeing it with, uh, you know, tech-heavy names pulling back. So I want to just look up right now while I am on the podcast because I don't do any work in advance of recording the podcast because I just don't care enough and it's a huge pain in the ass. Pardon my candor, but I feel like we're at that point where we can have that type of candor now. Uh, So let's just take a look at the NASDAQ year-to-date. The NASDAQ is down 8.3% so far to start the year. That is following uh, the last three months, it is down 5.2%. So, and the last six months, it is still has barely eked out a gain of uh, 46 basis points. Uh, One month down 5.47%, but year-to-date... Uh, the number has been atrocious. Uh, It is down 8.34% year-to-date. And also, let's check out the Dow while we're at it. Dow Jones Composite Average, bada-bing, bada-boom. And the Dow is down 4.13%, kind of helping further an argument that I made in December and will continue to make uh, that Peter Schiff also said, but I've been saying this shit before him. And by the way, he said some shit too last week. I forget what it was, but something about ARC on Twitter. And I was like, motherfucker, I said that like three months ago. But you don't hear me freaking out, do you, Peter? You don't hear me freaking out. Totally fine. Totally composed. Totally calm. I made the world's worst cup of coffee this morning. Calmer than you are. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. <laughs> so the Dow the Dow starts the year down 4.13%. The Nasdaq starts the year down 8.34%. 
going to further what I've been saying about a rotation from growth to value. Uh, and, you know, look, this has been a long time coming. I think value stocks will get hit too because there's still, you know, most value stocks now trade with a PE of between 20 and 30. That probably needs to come down to between 10 and 20. Um, you know, but that's better than most tech stocks, which trade at a PE of zero because they don't have any E, they just have P. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they and they traded even like price to sales of over 100. Uh, speaking of which, many names like that in the ARC portfolio, which we'll discuss in a second when I talk about totally smart market geniuses with very huge brains. <laughs> so I think as all the indexes will probably fall, some money will move from the NASDAQ into the Dow because you can't get yield anywhere else. You sure as fuck can't get it in the bond market uh, right now. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to get 2% interest in a bank. Even if the Fed hikes, you get 2.5% Well, with inflation is, you know, 7%. So you're guaranteeing yourself uh, a loss of, you know, 4.5%. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, and so maybe you look for appreciation in value stocks and in uh, all the places like Shift talks about, you know, emerging markets and small caps and shit that's overseas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that the Fed is stuck in this difficult spot where it, if inflation holds up and the dollar starts to fall a little bit, they are really going to be shit out of luck. They can't hike without crashing markets. End of story. There's just too much debt, too much speculation. We're in too big of a mania, and the bubbles have gotten so huge that you can't do that. You can't hike without popping the bubble. We're already seeing the air coming out of the bubble. Again, major indexes down between 4 and 8% to start the year this year. We're only 20 days into the year. I mean, imagine how bad it could get if this continues, and we haven't even hiked rates yet. Really, all that's happened is a slight tapering with a little bit of language that may be uncomfortable for some market participants. So you have that, and the Fed is not going to be able to back off its uh, plans to taper because inflation will continue to run rampant. There's a psychological component to inflation that will continue to run rampant. Uh, we will have, quote unquote, you know, lost the war against inflation if the Fed decides that it's going to ease again. Schiff says he thinks that price controls will happen. I happen to agree with him only because they are the next tool in the, uh, you know, micromanaging the economy uh, toolkit 101. Uh, that the government has, right? Because if you are completely lobotomized when it comes to economics and you believe in all of this central planning around capital markets, around the economy in general, and you don't believe in letting free markets do what they need to do, uh, you know, it's like that gif of the guy trying to hold on to the fish while it's flopping around and he can't and eventually it just flops out of its hands. Because no matter what you try to control... Right, price is just another variable to try to control. If you control interest rates, it's like okay, well now you're you're fixing the price of money. If you control the price of whatever squash, right? Say the say Joe Biden comes out and make a speech tomorrow. It was like nobody's paying more than five dollars for squash. Everyone in this nation deserves squash. Well, what's gonna happen? 
what's going to happen, right? The people that are producing squash are not going to be motivated to produce it anymore because they're not going to be able to charge what they need to charge commensurate with inflation. Supply is going to dry up and it's just going to create a bigger clusterfuck than that was there to begin with. This all falls under the umbrella of you can't micromanage markets. You just can't do it. And the more you try to, the worse the outcome is going to be. The whole reason that the Fed is stuck in this black box that they're in now and this corner that they can't get out of is because we tried to micromanage markets to begin with. And now, all of a sudden, we have run out of air. You know, it's like going to the casino and, you know, you're playing with house money and then the house money dries up and then you take the money out of your wallet and that dries up too. And then you take out a credit line and all of a sudden that dries out too. And then all of a sudden the casino stops giving you money and you've tapped out of everything and you're just there left with no other options. And that's where the Fed is. They're really between a rock and a hard place now. Because inflation, and I wrote about this last month, inflation has become a big political issue, which means that both sides of the mainstream media are covering it, which means that it's going to be an issue for voters coming up in November. Um, And so they're going to have to try to feign as though there is something else that they can do to rein it in. But in reality, there really isn't anything that they can do to rein it in. They can talk about price controls. You know, look, if you're a plumber and you don't really understand the economy that well because you're too busy actually adding to the productive capacity of the country on a daily basis, you don't have all day to sit around and think about why price controls is a bad idea. You just think, okay, well, if the government's going to try to cap oil, you know, gas for my car at $5 a gallon, well, that works to my benefit. Yeah, it does, but it's creating massive distortions behind the scenes in the economy and in the industry where it is trying to control the price. And, you know, look, the whole reason we're fucked now to begin with is because the Fed price-fixed interest rates, right? Interest rates are the price of money. The Fed has fixed them over the last two decades at artificially low prices. And what has happened? Things have gotten distorted. The market hasn't been able to breathe. There's been no blow-off valve. So you have an enormous equity bubble with ungodly pornographic amounts of debt outstanding. And you have inflation running rampant in the country and there's nothing that we can do. So we have to dig into our box oh shit, uh, you know, tools, uh, including price controls and all these other dumbass ideas that I'm sure will come out akin to, uh, you know, the trillion dollar coin on that level of brilliance. I'm sure we'll see more of that. And uh, and it's just going to make things worse. And the only thing that's going to make things better is allowing the market to correct Either interest rates are going to have to go way up and crash the markets, or we are going to go into an inflationary shitstorm, the likes of which we've never seen, um, at which point that will cause a currency collapse. And the fuck was that? Oh, my God. My my uh, my Siri is talking to me. My HomePod is listening to me do my uh, podcast. Did you guys hear that? Hey, shut the fuck up, all right? I'm talking over here. Hey, Siri, don't say anything for the next 30 minutes. I'm not sure I understand. I said, hey, Siri, don't say anything for the next 30 minutes. I'm not sure I understand. Hey, I'm, Siri, I'm going to fucking unplug you in one second. Hold on.
Don't do anything for the next hour. I'm not sure I understand. Hey Siri, mute yourself for an hour. I adjust the volume of my voice automatically. This is about 80%. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. And I can't even reach the plug. I can't reach the plug. I can't unplug it. I never wanted this fucking thing in my house anyways. Somebody gave it to me as a gift. I hate it. It turns on when I don't want it. I just wasted God knows how much time. I'm not even going to edit it out of the podcast because I want you guys to understand how much I hate this thing. Anyways, this seems like a great time to segue from what I was just saying. So uh, here it is. Two options. Currency collapse and the dollar goes uh, way lower or uh, the market goes way lower and all hell breaks loose that way. Either way, uh, congratulations. It's going to be a great year ahead. Um, I really think the Fed has put their fucking foot in it here. This is the kind of situation that a lot of perma bears saw coming, right? You can be called a perma bear or all these other names that people give you, Dr. Doom, whatever. But the point is, you know, if you saw this years ago, you were kind of written off, like, because all these fake CPI numbers and all the hysteria and euphoria and and the lack of inflation, uh, you know, it kind of had people convinced that QE was going to work ad infinitum uh, and that it would never have any flaws. And COVID really has shown us uh, through a nice combination of COVID, uh, the government forcibly shutting down the economy. Uh, the Fed basically like ass blasting the entire country with, you know, four trillion dollars out of thin air and then paying people to stay home and not work, which, by the way, brilliant idea uh, by the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Uh, and so here you go. It's like if you wanted to draw up a playbook to create inflation, this is exactly what they would be doing and exactly what they've done. So now we're now we're really we've put our foot in it. Uh, how much of a lagging indicator this is for actions we've taken in the past, which is another thing that Schiff talked about on his podcast. I'm not sure. I don't want to repeat everything that he said, but I do want to talk about some things that I have talked about uh, over the last month or two on my blog. And that is not just that the Fed is uh, completely screwed, but so are the incredible market geniuses that it has created. What do I mean? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. You know, it's not an especially easy thing to do to try to call out froth and excess in a market when everybody is just celebrating the market going up, right? So CNBC wheels all these asset managers out like Kathy Wood and like Ross Gerber, who most people that have lived through market excess and are, you know, relatively well-informed about the market. I mean, these people know when they watch somebody like Gerber or Wood give their pitch on CNBC that luck seems to have a lot to do with it. The Fed is a rising tide that lifts all boats when it pukes out $4 trillion into the stock market, essentially, um, and that asset managers may not be uh, you know, asset managers that are getting credit for their vision and their financial acumen uh, may be getting praised uh, just for being lucky. And there has really been no shortage of tweets and statements from these types of asset managers that serve as canaries in the coal mine as to the true depth of their understanding of the markets and really how much of their success can be attributed to their personal financial acumen versus the Fed just, you know, 
everybody made 22% last year if you just put your money in the queues and left it there. Um, And so what was interesting about the end of the year last year was that the volatility very quickly takes some of the shine away from these asset managers. You know, people used to invest with hedge fund managers and active managers because you used to need them in a stock picker's market. Back when stocks used to go up and down and the Fed hadn't done quantitative easing, which essentially guaranteed that equities go higher no matter what, no matter what their price is, no matter whether or not they're earning anything. Back when you actually had to perform analysis, you know, hedge funds were in demand because people would want their investments managed by people that could, you know, look, run net present value calculations and DCF models and find hidden value and extract it from companies. Um, And conversely, find out where there's excess and use that to hedge. And so the days of the stock picker, the hedge fund manager, the active manager, uh, really are all but gone. Uh, because the Fed has rigged the market and it just goes up. And so now you have people that come along and claim to be asset managers, active managers, stock pickers, but really don't need the wherewithal or the acumen that they once would have to navigate the markets. Basically, in the words of Jerry Seinfeld talking about taxi drivers, I think all you need is a face, (laughs) you know, at this point. I think all you need is a face. What's the common thread between asset managers like Ross Gerber and Kathy Wood? Well, they both have faces. Maybe that's it. I'm not sure what qualifications you actually need. Uh, Both of those asset managers, in my opinion, got lucky because they bet on Tesla, which fundamentally, from any angle you looked at it, was an extraordinarily, inordinately risky bet. Uh, It paid off uh, massively due to what I can only describe as an interesting move in the stock, which 10x'd, I think, over the course of 18 months. Totally normal, right? Uh, And option volumes were off the charts at the same time, but whatever. Uh, And all of a sudden, two stars were born. They were the two people that had the insight to invest in Tesla and stick with their conviction the whole time. They have the vision that the rest of us that, you know, look at fundamentals and kind of look down on things like, mm, I don't know, faking an $80 billion buyout bid for your company and or committing securities fraud as negatives. They had the vision to see it through. Wow. How did you guys do it? Well, I'm not sure if they know how they did it, to be honest with you. I mean, I know what they'll say. They'll say Elon Musk. They'll say full self-driving. Neural network, they'll say. Pigs with neurochips implanted in their brain. And Elon Musk is going to Mars. And we're all going to Mars. Okay, fine. But really, how did it happen? How does a stock 10x in 18 months and go from a you know $100 million billion market cap to a $1 trillion market cap in the course of a year? What fundamentally changed to do that. And one of the methods deployed by active managers such as these along the way to the Tesla, you know, road of success, whatever you want to call it, uh, has been the hold your nose and close your eyes and buy the dip at all costs. And we saw Kathy Wood do this with, you know, names like Robin Hood. We saw Gerber Kawasaki do it with names like uh, whatever that fun, fun V is, fun... 
fun UV, SUV. I don't know. The fucking thing looks so stupid. I looked at it for like 30 seconds. Archimoto, I think maybe it is. The one with Galileo Russell on the board. But whatever. They've been buying the dip blindly. And that has been a strategy that has worked because the Fed has made it work. So when you look at something like Teladoc, okay, that is a component in Kathy Wood's ARKK flagship fund, uh, and she's buying it at first at these insane valuations, right? And actually, let's just take a look at Teladoc here because why the fuck not? I'm sitting here with nothing to do. You guys obviously have time. You don't value your time very well if you're listening to me. So let's just look at the old financial metrics here. Uh, just for shits and giggles, uh, Teladoc net income. Uh, I'm looking at a trailing 12 month figure. Uh, let's do it over the last 10 years. It has never been above zero, which means the company has been losing cash on a, uh, has been, you know, had negative net income, burning cash, not profitable, uh, bad, bad, negative, bad, positive, good numbers. Uh, all right. Has been below zero for the last 10 years. Uh, and has gotten significantly worse. Now, I don't know shit about this business at all. Uh, I know it involves, you know, doctors over the phone, whatever, but I've never looked at it. And so the trailing 12-month net income figure for this company has gone from what appears to be about negative $100 million up until 2021 to now it appears to be negative $811 million. So the losses appear to have widened. Its price to sales looks like it peaked at over 25 uh, in early 2020. That must have been after the pandemic. It got, uh, you know, a crazy valuation. The stock got bit up. That has now dropped to a price to sales of 6.3, six times sales. Still a lofty price to sales number for a name that isn't generating uh, any cash. Uh, its low price to sales looks like it came in about 2017 of maybe four or five times sales, whatever. Um, and the point is, for a name like this, there really isn't much of a bottom because a bottom comes from cash generation. If a company spits off cash, that's something that can be valued and can create a foundation for our financial model. Uh, unless you're modeling out years and you think there's going to be some huge trend difference and the company's going to swing to profitability 5, 10, 15 years out from now, you know, there really isn't much of a fundamental floor on a name that trades at six times sales. And, uh, you know, posted an $811 million loss over the last uh, over the last 12-month period. Now, just for my own edification here, let's also take a look at the company's enterprise value because I want to see how big of a loss that is. Okay, so this company has a $12.4 billion enterprise value and has lost almost a uh, billion dollars over the last 12-month uh, period. So, you know, there's really, you know, what what's to keep this company from re-rating to three times sales, uh, which would be, you know, a $6 billion or $7 billion enterprise value, which would put its price at half of where it is now. Well, really nothing. I mean, it's just market sentiment about, let's see where it trades. Um, it's just market sentiment about where it belongs and where its valuation belongs, right? The price of this fucking pig right now is $79 a share down from highs of what looked like near $300 a share in early 2020. Um, so if you bought it at 300 and it's at 79 now, and I think she was buying this thing all through 2020, 
um, and it has just gotten decimated, and she's been buying it on the way down because she's been conditioned to think that buying the dip is going to work because it's a strategy that the rising Fed tide supports. Um, And, you know, buying the dip is sometimes the right thing to do, but it can't be in the absence of any type of fundamental valuation, right? When the Fed isn't there to just be the tide that lifts all boats, buying the dip on the way down with a company that doesn't necessarily have a floor because it doesn't generate any profits, you know, then the dip can just keep dipping and you can keep buying it, but it can keep dipping. And uh, that has been the case. And so ARK's portfolio for its flagship fund is full of names like this companies like this that aren't necessarily profitable, that maybe she was buying at these insane valuations, you know, and look, maybe in her brain, and she posted something the other day, you know, I've never seen such a disconnect between deep value and this. It's like, there's no deep value. I don't think anybody's ever used the word deep value to describe a company that doesn't generate any cash. You can't have deep value. You know, that's just deep nothing. You know, it's just nothing. It's not even value. But I mean, she's probably thinking I bought it at 300. It's at 80 now. Maybe their sales are up. You know, maybe revenue's up 15%. But who gives a fuck? You know, who cares? Who cares? What is the market going to care about revenue? This is what's crazy, right? The Fed has conditioned the entire market to think that revenue and, you know, even pre revenue companies are worth these insane valuations. Look at Rivian. Look at what happened with Nikola, right? I mean, the company's never even generated any revenue. And they're walking around with 5, 6, 10, 50, 40. $30 billion valuations, when you're conditioned to think that that's normal, you know, a move lower like this really doesn't make sense to you, which is why Kathy Wood is posting all this nonsense on her Twitter about, and I'm, I really, I want to read some of the tweets that she put up a couple days ago, but she's posting all this nonsense. I think she's genuinely confused as to how these names could come down, right? And so she has stocked her entire flagship fund with all of these names, if it's pre-revenue, if it's pre-profit, if it's 100 times sales, I mean, it would be like if somebody went out and just found the most overvalued shit and put it all into an ETF. It's incredible the underperformance that this fund has had, and it has only been two and a half months of volatility. We're not even in some kind of great market crash, right? But so many names like Teladoc in her portfolio are down so far off their highs because they were so absurdly valued to begin with that she thinks buying the dips on the way down is a strategy, but she, I don't know, maybe she doesn't know that, you know, for this thing to return to its pre-pandemic price, Teladoc, it looks like it would have to be, uh, you know, maybe $60 a share, which would be from here another 20 or 30% lower. You know, and if the market and those are pre-pandemic highs, so the market was already high on crack before the pandemic. So say those shave off another thirty or forty percent. You know, say the market just decides to re-rate and value companies only that are generating cash, which is what this rotation from growth to value looks like. I mean, these types of companies will get absolutely fucking crushed, right? And this woman is going to be sitting around wondering how it all could have went wrong. And when you look at the types of names she has been continuing to buy the dips on in her flagship fund, they are getting smoked, okay? Robinhood, 79% off of its one-year high. Off its, off its one-year high, it is 79% lower than it was at one point less than a year ago, right? Roku, 63% off its one-year high. 
Block, which is Square. 53% off its one-year high. Unity Software, 41% off its one-year high. So this is what happens when, you know, you buy a bunch of extremely overvalued crap and pass it off as though, hey, the innovation here, these companies will eventually grow into these robust valuations. It's like, yeah, maybe by the year 3000, right? But we can't stay in this bubble forever. And this is just peak euphoria. Peak bubble. Asset manager buys a bunch of crap. One of them outperforms. People on financial media basically, you know, nut over this. Oh, this, this woman's incredible. What an incredible visionary, right? All of a sudden, she's fucking on the cover of Forbes. They're making, you know, she's got her own merch on her website. She's selling ARK Invest hats. You know, people are like, oh, Kathy Wood. I think somebody, I saw an article one time in Japan. They call her like Miss Money Tree or something. It's like, no, the money tree is the central bank that's supporting all this nonsense. She's just a random market participant that happens to be buying crap that's going up. And now that central banks have stepped out of the way, now it's time to see what stock pickers are made out of. And all of a sudden, clang, many of your holdings are down 50, 60, 70, 80% almost from their highs. And by the way, the volatility is just fucking getting started. The point of this rant isn't just to rail on Kathy Wood. It's to make the point that the Fed being backed into this corner is going to not only crush the markets, but it will crush all the market participants that think that they're geniuses for making returns over the last couple of years. All the meme stock nonsense, everybody that, you know, bet it all on call options and made 100 times their money. It's now going to be time to see who's left standing, who's got the brains to protect their assets when the Fed steps out of the way. And, you know, look, it's been a month and a half, okay? And the big story, ARC was the big story for, you know, 2019 and 2020 because that's when Tesla outperformed, right? It has given back all of that outperformance versus its benchmark, okay? So if you look over the last three years, and if you look at a chart here of the NASDAQ and ARC, ARC really made its run starting in 2020. It skyrocketed thanks to Tesla, making that extremely unnatural move that, by the way, I'm still very skeptical of. I've said it many times. Not sure what was going on there or why Tesla was all of a sudden 10 x over the course of, you know, 18 months. But I did think something fucky was going on in the options market, and we'll have to see. By the way, in the middle of all of this, Bill Huang kind of suddenly, you know, Archigos happens, right? He blows up. The two of them know each other. I don't know if there's anything there. Just just an interesting thing to note. But all of the outperformance, and if you look at a chart of ARK and the NASDAQ, you can see in about March 2020, ARK starts to peel away from the NASDAQ in terms of performance, which is its benchmark, right? So in the middle of January uh, 2021, the NASDAQ is up about 80%, and ARK is up about almost more than 200%, and that was a result of Tesla just going bananas. Since then, the ARC has now fallen underneath its benchmark. So over the last three years, ARC is up 84.1%, and the NASDAQ's up 102.7%, which means that active management has not been worth it over the last three years. You'd be better off putting your money into the NASDAQ. When you zoom in to a one-year chart, let's talk about the last 12 months Okay, the NASDAQ is up 9.7%. ARC is down 46% in 
in the last 12 months. That is underperforming its benchmark by about 55%. Okay, so that means in your next prospectus, you have to you know show your performance versus your benchmark. You have to show that in the last 12 months, you're down 46% while, you know, the guy serving my coffee at Wawa who has a 401k that goes out and buys the QQQ NASDAQ ETF, even he made 9% over that, you know, 9.7% over that period of time, right? If you zoom in even further, the last six months, uh, actually, let's zoom in to the last uh, three months. Uh, the, the NASDAQ has fallen 4.2%, but ARC is down 34.54%. So it has underperformed its benchmark and year to date since the beginning of 2022, not that long. ARC is already down 17% for the year. That is a crushing way to start the year. And the NASDAQ is down 7%. So it's about 10% underperforming its benchmark to start the year. So this has all happened while Tesla, the price of Tesla, which is the largest weighting in ARC, has held up, right? So Tesla has been ARC's biggest position. It is kind of what drove them to, you know, fame and fortune and made Kathy Wood richer than I will ever be in a million billion years. And I always give her credit for that. You know, great job, great success. Uh, no doubt she's been a success. She makes something like $300 million a year in fees. Eric Balchunas was telling me that's wonderful, you know? Great job. By that measure, she's a success. But I keep coming back to the idea of what's going to happen if the floor falls out from Tesla. You know, Bank of America was out in, with a note the other day that said that Tesla's U.S. market share could slip from 69% to 19% by 2024. What's going to happen? I mean, look, there's a there's a whole litany of people that will tell you Tesla's 50 times overvalued right now as it stands because it's an automaker. It's not a tech company, so it should be trading at an automaker multiple. But whatever. The auto you know, industry right now, which traditionally traded between, you know, six and ten times earnings, has just gone ballistic because everybody thinks that the introduction of electric vehicles is some reason for some massive multiple expansion. Fine. Whatever. ARC's biggest weighting, Tesla. Okay, is up 58% over the last six months. 58%. That's the largest weighting in the entire fund. It's up 58%. Over the same time, ARC is down 32.6%. That means that the fund has underperformed its largest weighting by about 90%, right? The largest weighting in the fund. The biggest component it holds is up almost 60% in the last six months, yet the rest of the holdings are such dog shit that the fund has somehow managed to fall 32% over the same amount of time. I mean, that is stunning. That's stunning. It's absolutely insane. It, it's like if you if you asked me to go out and pick a bigger pile of uh, companies more prone to a collapse in this type of environment, I'm not sure that I could do it. And the frightening thing for Wood should be if we are at the beginning of really, you know, what I think could be a 1999-style crash again. And I, I wrote an article about that in November. You can check it out if you want. I'm not going to rehash it. But I think due to, you know, the weaponization of options and all this crazy QE and the pandemic and bunch of things. I, I really think we could be on the, the, the verge of another tech bubble. Um, you know, 
the last time the Fed made a 50 basis point hike was right before the 99 crash, I think. And now everybody's talking. Ackman is saying we need a 50 basis point hike. So if that happens, I mean, fucking look out below for the NASDAQ. I think the NASDAQ's at unnatural levels to begin with. I've argued that because of SoftBank, Goldman, all these people manipulating the NASDAQ with options, in my opinion. But we'll see. I think the NASDAQ is susceptible uh, way more than other indexes. And uh, and there's no better collection of, you know, overvalued euphoric garbage in the NASDAQ than what this woman has tacked, tagged, tacked, tucked, tucked is the fucking word I'm looking for, tucked into this ETF. Jesus Christ, speaking English is tough sometimes. Speaking of having difficulty with the English language, I want to review some of Kathy Wood's tweets from a couple of days ago. Oh my goodness, this woman is wonderful. This one is from yesterday. The disconnect between valuations for innovative companies in the public versus private markets is as wide as I have ever seen. The arbitrage opportunity is enormous. Okay, first off, <laughs> first off, private companies aren't constantly revalued, okay? Private companies get revalued like once a quarter, once every two quarters, once a year sometimes. Anytime they take on a new round of investment, they get revalued, right? So it's not like the public markets where Twitter's price fluctuates every day and the market assigns it a different valuation every single day. So you can't talk about arbitrage opportunities because the market and her ETF has really only been crashing for like two months, right? So many of these private companies that she's likely referring to uh, probably haven't even had their books marked uh, since the end of last year. Maybe some of them even longer than that. So let's just see what those valuations look like over the next three to six months. And then we'll see if her quote unquote arbitrage opportunity is still there. You know, look, the public markets are far more forward looking instruments than the private markets. So there's really no arbitrage opportunity because you're looking in the fucking rear view mirror when you're looking at the private markets. You're not you're not looking out the window. You're not looking at the windshield. I mean, if there's an arbitrage opportunity, it's to short the shit in the private market if you can, because the public market's already telling you that your innovation stocks are crap. I mean, come on. In the words of Eminem, I didn't have to graduate from Lincoln High School to know that. <laughs> so the Fed is hosed, and so are the market geniuses that it created. I now want to take a quick second and talk about covid because uh, I wrote a couple pieces on COVID over the last couple of days. And if you want more about my uh, you know, market takes and some of the people that I follow, uh, check out my blog, Fringe Finance. Uh, I post there almost daily uh, new content. So if you want more, check that out. If you want to stay up to date in between podcasts, uh, you can sign up for free, but I prefer you pay. How about that? <laughs> Let's be honest, folks. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to note. You know, I put out this article a couple of weeks ago called 22 Stocks I'm Watching for 2022. 22 names on my watch list, uh, just names that I've like, you know, talked about, some of which I've owned. Uh, but stocks that I'm keeping an eye on for the new year, Activision was number eight on that list. And that was uh, announced to have been part of a buyout offer by Microsoft a couple days ago. So that roared up 30%. Uh, I just wanted to make note of that. By the way, I also get a lot of shit wrong. Uh, so, you know, I never want to point out anything I get right without saying 
I do get a lot of shit wrong too. As a matter of fact, I'll read you my whole disclaimer right now from uh, my website, which this says at the bottom of every post. So if if you go log on to Fringe Finance, here's what you'll read. Disclaimer, I have owned or recently owned all of these names. I may add any name mentioned in this article and sell any name mentioned in this piece at any time without further warning. None of this is a solicitation to buy or sell securities. These positions can change immediately as soon as I publish this with or without notice. You are on your own. Do not make decisions based on my blog. I exist on the fringe. These are not the opinions of any of my employers, partners, or associates. I get shit wrong a lot. That's the last sentence. So uh, yeah, you got to remember that. And when I write about positions that I have on my blog. I'm not encouraging people to buy them, sell them, do what I do. I'm just writing them because, you know, a lot of times when I was doing the podcast years ago, people asked me, what do you own? What do you buy? Where's your money allocated? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, all right, can do this and I can make some rants uh, in between podcasts at the same time. And I can talk about politics, which I want to talk about. Um, you know, but I want to talk about COVID right now. Uh, my prediction for this year I had a post on my blog uh, go viral. It was called The Mainstream Media is Losing the Fight of Its Life, All Thanks to Joe Rogan. Uh, between my blog and, and being published on Zero Hedge, it got all, almost 750,000 reads, which is pretty incredible. Uh, it got featured on like Revolver News and a couple other places. But the point was that the media is going to have to change their narrative on COVID coming into this year uh, because the truth is starting to seep out. You know, just like the Fed has kind of run out of options, uh, the media has kind of run out of options. And people really are not taking kindly to it anymore. You see now CNN is basically trying to rearrange their content and programming to gear themselves more towards news. It's because their ratings are terrible, because they're just reporting inaccurate crap, uh, and people are starting to understand it. And when it comes to COVID, my big prediction for the year was that the media would be forced to make a change this year. You know, after the interviews of Dr. Peter McCullough and Robert Malone on Rogan, no matter what you think about the guys, and there's some stuff about them I don't like, there's some stuff I do, no matter what you think about them, what they're doing is they're opening up the discussion, right? And you have all these interesting things coming out now that I think are going to basically end the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates uh, heading into the new year. And actually, I wrote an article about that a couple of days ago. And since then, it was announced that Starbucks was ending the mandates. And uh, the the UK, I think, also, or England, one of the two announced that, I think it was the UK announced that they were going to end uh, mandates as well. And I'm not surprised. Uh, I wrote an article called Capitalism and common sense will end vaccine mandates in 2022 uh, on my blog on January 13th. I'd encourage you to check it out and read it. Um, and I wrote, you know, that I started out the year by predicting that capitalism and common sense would force a massive pivot in how the mainstream media reports on COVID. Um, and that, you know, we were kind of already starting to see that. CDC director Rochelle Walensky has appeared to have turned her focus to people with comorbidities. And, uh, you know, you even saw Jake Tapper, you know, Mr. Fantastic Reporter, the guy that got the microphone taken out of his hand during the Trump press conference, if you remember. <laughs> Sit down, sir. You're done with your question. Go back and work for CNN. Even Tapper came out and, you know, was finally kind of questioning people that were hospitalized with COVID versus people that were hospitalized for COVID. So all these things that the quote unquote conspiracy theorists have been and the skeptics have been kind of crowing about uh, are starting to come to fruition. 
And, you know, look, what I wrote was that capitalism, business owners doing what they need to do to survive, especially after getting hosed over the last couple of years, they're going to want to reopen and they are going to want to allow everybody in their store, whether they are vaccinated or not, right? You have a couple of things going on. You have the Omicron variant out now that is pretty much you know, looks like it could be acting as somewhat of a natural vaccine in the sense that it's highly infectious and it offers you protection. Your immuno, uh, immune system gets protection from uh, Delta and all the other variants. That's according to a doctor I listened to somewhere um, from it. And it's super infectious and it's making its way around the country. This is the new spike in cases we've seen. But after that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that have naturally acquired immunity, um, which, of course, in studies has been found to be more robust than immunity from the vaccine. And so, you know, is there a chance that Omicron could become nature's vaccine? That is a distinct possibility. Um, And if that happens, you know, the media is going to have to change its tune. And small business owners, the pandemic is really going to start to wind down a little bit. Um. You know, here's what I wrote. As vaccine mandates first started to make their way around as an idea last year, many businesses, both small and large, willingly adopted them for one of several reasons. One, many small businesses desperately wanted to keep their places of business open after being forcefully shut down through most of 2020 and suffering the loss of key revenue streams for them and their families. Reopening back up meant obeying either local, state, or federal mandates about vaccination and or masks. Two, some businesses may have believed that requiring mandatory vaccines made their business more attractive and safer looking to patrons, which is really another attempt of bringing people in the front door. And three, some businesses simply believe in the science and genuinely think they're doing the right thing by requiring such mandates. But then I shared a story of, you know, all the shops close to me in Philly where, look, you know, they post the signs in the door, masks and vaccine necessary, but nobody gives a shit. No shop owner, when I go in to buy a pack of M&Ms and a Diet Coke, is saying to me, let me see your vaccination card. They just want to do the business, you know? Uh, Most of these shops, many of them are run by immigrants who are just basically on their fucking hustle, right? They come here, they open up bodegas, they just want to make money. They've posted signs that they're indicating they're abiding by the mandates, but I've never seen them turn away a customer. And some of them have actually confided to me that the mandates are destructive to their business. Um, And many bartenders and restaurant owners have told me the same thing. So I think that capitalism and common sense will end the vaccine mandates and the mask mandates this year. Here's what I wrote. I believe a mass pivot is happening not only in the mainstream media, but among government entities tasked with overseeing the COVID response. In short, the powers that be understand that the citizens of this country have lost our patience with their bullshit And with midterms coming up, it's probably the only time over the last two years that anyone in government is putting the people's concerns over their own priorities. The narrative shift will do a couple of things. It'll stir up a discussion about natural immunity that's 18 months overdue. And uh, people will start to understand this concept and push harder on the science as to why it has conveniently ignored this topic. The narrative shift is also going to allow for momentum and media support of the idea to relax some mandates and begin returning to some locations that have strict COVID protocols back toward normal. That sentence, if I wasn't reading it like an asshole, is supposed to say, uh, you know, that the narrative shift is going to allow people some momentum in thinking that the COVID restrictions will loosen, right? We're going to start to see a loosening of restrictions, and that will kind of feed upon itself, 
right? You're always going to have some business owners that are going to mandate vaccines and masks forever, right? That's fine. The free market will assign them success or failure commensurate with how customers perceive those requirements in the future. But most other businesses, in my opinion, will be anxious to open the floodgates to new customers in any way possible. In fact, most business owners that find themselves at the center of the vaccine debate your average, even vaccinated, masked business owner that isn't a far right-wing or far left-wing conspiracy theorist is going to find middle ground that's practical for them and their customers. And I think that that middle ground, that practicality for the year coming up is just going to be making as much money as possible. People fucking need it, right? So these businesses are going to voluntarily start to remove vaccine and mask mandates, in my opinion. And I think we're already starting to see that. Uh, So I wanted to toot my own horn about this piece that I had written. You can go read the full thing if you want. I covered the nuts and bolts of it there. Um, But I also just wrote an article, too, uh, two days ago called Short the Whole Fucking Vaccine Thing, which, of course, is a play on my Short the Whole Fucking Thing presentation I gave four or five years ago. The point of this article, and this one is free to read, and it's on the front page of my blog, uh, quotetheraven.substack.com. Uh, It's called Short the Whole Fucking Vaccine Thing. But this article lays out, um, you know, what does the future look like for Moderna and Pfizer when the world finds out that, you know, Omicron is kind of acting as a natural vaccine? And now that we're learning that the vaccines are, you know, not really great against Omicron, you know, which is not a huge surprise to people like me. They've been listening to people like Geert Vandenbosch talk about how the vaccines will create new variants not a big surprise to me, but a big surprise to, you know, the, the government officials and the people that take their cues from them who are apparently 6, 12, 18 months behind, you know, reality. They are the official lagging indicator of this pandemic, in my opinion. So I would read this article. This article is all about um, what will happen to those companies when sales of vaccines and boosters start to dry up, which I think uh, is likely going to happen once the mandates wear off and people start to understand the reality of the situation, uh, which is that, you know, the vaccines probably won't be necessary for everybody in the future, might only be necessary for the immunocompromised, the elderly uh, people that, uh, you know, are susceptible to really having a rough go of it from COVID, while the rest of us, you know, I don't even want to touch on fringe topics like you can't get COVID twice, which is what Peter McCullough said on the Rogan interview. There's some wild shit there if that turns out to be true, but let's not even go there. Let's just say right here that I think the adoption of vaccines, uh, it's going to slow. And so I think it's worth understanding what could happen to those two companies as a result of that. A lot of shit to watch, not just those two companies, but the market in general Things are going to get interesting this year. We're going to have a lot to talk about. I'm going to have a lot to write about. Uh, I published a great interview with Harris Kupperman yesterday about why oil is going higher. That is also on my blog. I'm not going to review that. Um, I want to allow my subscribers a chance to read that first. Uh, I talked about a couple of stocks that I like. Two falling knives that I would catch no matter how low they go. Also on my blog January 18th. Um, and I've written a couple of pieces. I had the great Ron Paul on the last podcast, which I'm sure you guys have listened to. And that's it. I think we're pretty much caught up from now. The Fed is fucked. The geniuses that it uh, made due to the rising tide lifting all boats, I think, are also uh, going to be having a rough year. They're going to be doing some, as Kathy Wood said, doing some soul searching. 
Um, I think the media is going to make a drastic shift on how it talks about COVID. I think the vaccine and mask mandates are on their way out. I think the pandemic is going to be widely recognized as coming to an end. And I think uh, we will see a serious shift in attitudes heading into midterms because President Sleepy, his approval rating is like 33% right now, according to a recent Quinnipiac poll. And uh, that doesn't wing in election. So it should be interesting to see. I think the Democrats are going to get blown out in November as a result of, uh, you know, just the disaster over the last year. I think um, what happened in Virginia, the governor's race there, I think is a is a harbinger of what will come in the midterm elections. But we'll have to wait and see for right now. Check it out. I got things I got to do today. I'm the fuck out of here. Thank you so much to my patrons for your continued support. If you need more, go check out my blog, Fringe Finance. And if you don't, go outside, breathe the fresh air, turn your phone off, hug the people you love, and enjoy your day. I'm the fuck out of here. Peace.